Welcome back to Being Invested with me, Susanna Micklin. This is the podcast where we explore the personal stories of the people who make the markets. Breaking ground with our first podcast of 2024, I am joined by a true pioneer, Michelle Giddens, one of the founding parents of Impact Investment Globally and co-founder and co-CEO of Bridges Fund Management. Our conversation goes deep, exploring how shyness as a child cultivated a purposeful orientation to contribute and perform, to do useful things and be involved. Born in Leicester, but with early years in Canada and California, and then university at Oxford, Michelle has always embraced new frontiers and woven purpose into her hugely successful investing and business building career, which has charted some of the most fascinating developments in finance over the last couple of decades. Undeterred by extreme conditions in the Gobi Desert, nor skeptics in the city, Michelle has been a leader in helping to create a new model of investing designed to deliver both financial returns and positive, measurable impact for society. The global impact investment market has grown rapidly over the last decade to reach close to $1.2 trillion last year, according to the Global Impact Investing Network. Michelle has been at the forefront of this journey from the very start, initially working in the field in emerging market development finance and laterally, literally building bridges, with the firm now managing over £2 billion across multiple asset strategies with investments in Europe, the US, and recently in emerging markets. I have always admired Michelle's enthusiasm, focus, and clear creative thinking, and she leads by example. We cover fascinating ground with hard-won lessons, including reflections on the many hats worn in building a private markets investment firm and the mainstreaming of impact investing. As battles and tensions flare around the world, I think it's essential to shine a light on people finding ways to direct investment to create more equitable, sustainable, and peaceful life on our beautiful planet. Michelle is one of these people. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So Michelle, I am thrilled to be having this conversation with you today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So it is exciting to talk to you on many grounds. um, And there are so many ways we can take this conversation. It seems to me that purpose has been a really important driver for you throughout your life. So I'd like to start with the younger Michelle to understand where this had its roots. And at three, I believe you lived in Venice Beach in California, a a hippie heaven in the late 60s, early 70s, where (laughs) counterculture flourished. And after that, back in the UK, where you were still surrounded by some progressive ideas um, and made some interesting choices about your interaction with those ideas. I'd love to hear more about that. Um, I believe you've said you weren't growing up in a religious family, but that you were drawn to a bit for a while and you followed that with some activism at school. What about your childhood do you think has most shaped who you are? Well, (laughs) it's a great question. And actually, Susanna, um, it's, it's, it's funny that you ask it because this is a question that I very often ask candidates that are interviewing for Bridges, because for Bridges, it's critical for us to build a team that combines outstanding investment expertise with that sense of social and environmental purpose. And as I ask the question, I quite often wonder, how would I answer it? So <laughs> let me give Here's it a chance. Dance. 
<laughs> I mean, I don't think it is religious, as you say. Um, I was born into um, a family where well, my parents were very much creatures, I suppose, of the 1960s. And I was brought up with that sense of that kind of progressive slightly um, revolutionary culture uh, taught, I think, very much to question the status quo. My parents, they were not religious, as you say. In fact, they were quite um, determined atheists. Um, my father was a sociology professor, very much always found in a leather jacket and jeans. My mother stayed at home, but was very sociable, uh, a mini skirt wearing, trendy mother. Um, and I remember very happily going to sleep many nights with the sound of parties going on downstairs. And if you think about the 60s, that decade, which I think my parents inspired me with, you know, that was a decade in which the UK really changed from rather a bleak place uh, post-war, ration cards. Um, and both of my parents were born during the Second World War, by the way. And, and, and it changed until, you know, London certainly became this really hip centre for fashion, music. There was a sense of freedom. Feminism really started to take off. It was a period of technological change. You've got the space race. You've got the first man on the moon. You've got JFK and ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And there was just this big sense that um, the world could all change and could be made a better place. So um, for me, well, I was born in Leicester, where my um, father was teaching at the university, and my parents lived in a two-up, two-down modern house. And I remember that um, as a sociologist, my father chose that house because he thought, well, that's about the size of house that maybe everybody ought to be able to afford one day. So that seems the, the right sort of house for us to live in. And that was our life until, as you say, he got invited to then teach for a year in Vancouver and a year in Los Angeles. And um, as a very small child then, I was taken skiing in Canada very exotic. Mm. Um, we lived in a little wooden house right by Venice Beach, really on Venice Beach in Los Angeles. And I spent all my days in the sand and the sun and my parents were part of Los Angeles of 1968. So you've got, you know, Vietnam War, shooting of Martin Luther King, university strikes and walkouts, Paris, etc., um, and so when I came back to the UK, I think one thing that I sort of held on to because it made me feel it was one of maybe the only thing that made me feel sort of special or different compared to the others at school was that I had lived abroad like that, mm -hmm. even if I was only three mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and then after that, we moved to Cambridge when my father uh, landed a job at Cambridge University. And after that, we really didn't travel very much at all. But I somehow held on to this idea of a world being out there and a world that we could, you know, I could be involved with in a world in which things could be exciting and could change. Um, the other thing I was going to say was a, was a shaping factor in my childhood. And it's a strange one, maybe, was... Um, I I was chronically shy. Um, I think today it's called social anxiety, but quite extreme. So I uh, I was very shy and awkward. I couldn't find my place at school. 
you know, work academically was fine and I was lucky because that kind of came relatively easily to me. But all of the social side just did not. And so in terms of a sense of purpose, I found it's much easier if I was always doing things other than hanging out and, and having chats with friends. So I threw myself into some things you wouldn't think a shy person would do. So I joined the ballet company and performed on Cambridge and other stages. I joined a musical theatre company and did the same. I starred in the school play. I went to improvisation classes. I just somehow found it easier being on the stage with someone else's script mm. than making small talk among friends. And I was always heavily involved in all kinds of things out of school. One of them you mentioned, which was that um, at about the age of eight, I think in, in search of some sense of purpose, I um, started to take myself off to church on a Sunday morning. And actually, my parents thought this was some, I think, some sign of some kind of some sign of some kind of breakdown because this was not part of their their mental map at all but for a number of years I took myself off to the round church in Cambridge um, on my own then I kind of went the other way and became sort of more politically active uh, terribly concerned about nuclear weapons marched for CND etc um, and I think in some part a, a shy person goes looking for ways that they can be involved ways that they can justify their existence because the normal ones of sort of chat and boyfriends mm. and those sorts of things just were much harder. So I think it's that combination of the inspiration of my parents in the 1960s and then the difficulty of, of, of being so socially shy and awkward that made me sort of thrust myself into all kinds of bigger purposes and all kinds of all kinds of difficult things that in a way shaped my childhood and and now I can look back and um see that uh both of those had a big impact in who I became. Yes, that's so fascinating, Michelle. Thank you to see both the sort of extrinsic influences of the culture, the context um, the inspiration and then your personal relationship with that, you know, how you made sense of who you were and how you related to that and found ways to give yourself platforms that would allow you to, to feel more comfortable in that world. And, and it's put you in very good stead. And it did then too, you went on, uh, to Oxford getting a PPE degree and that in itself opens a lot of doors, you know, it, it, many different kinds of doors, both your own sort of mental doors and and your own ideas and her, horizons can be expanded, but also opportunity sets um, open up. What what was it like for you there? And, and now that you've shared, you know, some of the social anxiety that you might have not called it that at the time, but some of the shyness, what was it like going to such a, you know, sort of hallowed halls of Oxford and, and how has that time there influenced you? Yeah, very, very influential, but I'll admit initially just completely terrifying. Uh, at the time, and I'm aging myself now, but at the time I went, to uh, Balliol College, Oxford, it was only five years since women were first accepted at Balliol. So there were about three or four men to each woman. It was still very, very uh, private 
school in terms of the, the vast majority of students still came from private schools. And I Did remember you come from a private that, school or were you coming from a state <laughs> no, school? No, not at all. Not right. at all. Mm-hmm. Completely local state schools all the way through. Um, so I remember that welcome dinner, um, rows and rows of uh, young men in, in, in black tie, actually, which I had actually not seen real people in black tie <laughs> outside of movies, uh, all lined up alongside those ancient long tables in a great hall with portraits of the masters of the colleges over the years. And it was incredibly intimidating and incredibly foreign to me. Um, And I did really notice that there was a big difference in confidence, um, at least confidence to speak up in classes and tutorials between those private school, largely boys and, and, well, me, definitely. (laughs) Um, So it was intimidating at first, but what a privilege, what an extraordinary privilege to be surrounded by people that suddenly I felt, you know, the people there actually they mostly didn't want to do small talk. They wanted to sit out in the quad until late at night discussing Wittgenstein and they wanted to debate American politics or they wanted to decide whether they were going to go off and uh, support the miners' strike. And so for a, I, I suppose for me it was the place that this external world that you talked about, Susanna, that I had grown up with kind of became part of my world because I was spending time every day with with actually people who have gone on to become well-known journalists, politicians, civil servants, successful business people. Actually, some of them go into the field of investment as well. And, and I suppose, although I was still pretty shy with them, it was easier than mm-hmm. it had been before. And uh, they were all talking about ideas for how we make the world a better place. And so I think it was it was a, a great transition for me from childhood into preparing to be an adult and to actually decide what I would do with my life. And it sounds like you met that intimidation with a curiosity um, and that that has often been you know, a sort of signature trademark of yours. Um, so even if there's a there's a shyness, there was a, a driving force of of some curiosity and and wanting to be at that table, wanting to participate in those conversations as well. Yeah, I think the actually if I I can just yeah, the um that reaction to shyness that caused me to say, well, let me go on the stage in front mm-hmm. of everyone was uh, it, it was some some kind of determination to fight back um, by doing the thing that felt to me the absolutely scariest that I could do. Um, and one of the great gifts that one of my uh, great friends at university gave me was uh, she asked me, um, at breakfast one day, where in the world have you ever have you always wanted to go? And I sat there thinking, well, I've actually, I'm a bit scared to go anywhere. I never really thought about wanting to go anywhere in the rest of the world. And she said, I've always wanted to go to China. And so because I didn't want to let her down, I said, me too. And before we knew it, we were off to China for uh, three months. So I think that you're exactly right that um, the Oxford um, challenged me and I I did um, with great trepidation embraced those challenges and it um it 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 changed uh, it changed my life 
it also strikes me listening to those stories that that experience gave you a powerful understanding of being an outsider in a way, as well as understanding the machinations, the, 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 the methods of power and the ways of thinking differently. And that maybe leads into what you've done with your career as well. Um, and you didn't, it, by the sound of it, go into Oxford or even leave Oxford with investment management on the mind. <laughs> um, you didn't have your mind set on being an investor. And uh, when we've spoken before, I, I think you mentioned you thought maybe war correspondent or other another kind of journalist um, might have fit your interests or your personality. How did all of that happen? How did you move from all of those ideas and that sense of adventure and, and travel into seeing a role for yourself in business? I said that I went to China the first year um, at university. The second year, um, inspired by another friend at university who was Palestinian, I went and spent the summer teaching English in refugee camps um, outside Nablus and uh, became fascinated um, with the uh, what looked uh, almost insoluble um, political problem in the Middle East. And it's, of course, as we speak today, Susanna, it's a very live and painful ongoing uh, challenge. Yeah. Um, and so when I came out of uh, university, as you say, I thought what I would do is go and do the same thing, but for a year living in Gaza teaching English. But the uh, the charity that I had gone out there with uh, considered it too dangerous at that point in time because of that first intifada. And so I ended up having a year off, a wonderful year off in Mexico. Um, when I came back from Mexico, it was time, I thought, to start my adult life, my career. The first place I thought was, well, maybe I'll start with strategic management consultancy. And I did one interview, I think it was with BCG. And I remember they asked me, how many tractors do I think are sold in France each year? And I remember thinking, I have no idea. And I think I have very little interest in that. Anyway, I didn't get offered the job, not because of that, but because apparently I didn't make eye contact enough. And it ended up that the small British charity that I had gone and taught English with <clears throat> in, um, in, in the West Bank was looking for someone to run those programs. And so I joined that charity and ran the volunteer programs, selecting 65 volunteers going out to the West Bank, Gaza and Jordan and finding places for them to live, finding places for them to teach or work with handicapped children. Quite extraordinary responsibility for, I guess, then I must have been 22 years old mm -hmm. during the time of the Intifada. But I think I did that in part because in those days, if you felt that you wanted a life that would have some kind of purpose or make some kind of difference, mm. then you probably thought in those days that you should either go into politics or, or be working for a charity. And so yeah. I did try working for a charity. And then I remember sitting in Jerusalem, um, typing out on a typewriter applications to the foreign office. So that would have been, of course, government to the National Health Service training scheme and to uh, universities for an MBA. And I decided to take the MBA, I think, because it kept more options open. And so that's how I ended up going. I chose Georgetown because I thought, well, business alone, I thought might be a bit narrow. 
uh, what little did I know at that stage, I was only 23. Um, so I wanted to be in the centre of government and I did volunteer um, in Congress while I was doing my MBA. Um, and so that really brought together public policy and the world of business mm. and investment for me. Mm. Um, and that's that's where uh, I, I decided, I, I saw a certain measurability, professional discipline that business or investment had that I hadn't quite found in the charitable sector. And that intrigued me. And it was on the back of that when uh, being in the US and watching the Berlin Wall come down, I thought I must go out to Eastern Europe to be a part of the transformation of those state-led, centrally controlled economies into more of a market economy. Um, and that that was the beginning of my journey into um, development finance. Again, there's an echo of of figuring out what was maybe the le- thing you knew least about and was probably the scariest in some ways and thinking, right, I want to understand that. <laughs> I want to be able to reckon with it and hold my own in this world as well. Um, sort of seems like that. Um, also could be a, a, have have influenced some of your thinking. Probably true. I, I think it was partly um, a desire for uh, to keep the options open, to have a, a big page on which to write my career, because I mm. just couldn't quite find yet where this sense of wanting to do something that was good for the world and yet was technical, was measurable, was professional and disciplined. And I hadn't quite found that place. And um, and, and I think, I mean, I had done maths uh, to A-level and so, uh, and I'd done economics in, 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 in my PPE degree. Um, but nevertheless, that was, you know, the, the, the modeling and all of that was a bit of a stretch. And business for me was a stretch when I did an MBA. It was very much academic. I'd never really, you know, I'd never worked in a business when I did the, my MBA. So, yes, I think I was, I was definitely um, stretching, but it was with a desire to mix purpose with this technical skills and this, this real sense of measurability of outcome, I think. Mm. And you've touched on it, but I was interested to understand sort of what, attitudes, qualities you felt you had that allowed you to move into that? The MBA was actually quite difficult um, because it was so academic for me. And the truth is I really learned those technical skills in the real world, in Hungary, um, valuing, um, I remember, a dairy for privatisation and in Poland doing the cash flow models for large um, multinational joint ventures between Polish and and um, Western companies. The hard part was was really the on the ground learning, being with real businesses, spending time with the management teams that we were investing with when I was with IFC, for example, um, in Poland. And, and that's the bit that I, I think um, I needed to make the transition from the academic to the practical. Mm-hmm. And yet that suited me because somehow having had to strive quite hard to be confident in social and then academic spaces, um, I had become quite adept at covering that up and mm-hmm. at establishing relationships with people. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that I've, I've always um, felt very comfortable with is entrepreneurship. 
Mm. And clearly a huge part of being an investing, um, certainly the kind of investing that we do, is loving the idea of creation of something mm. new, loving the idea of businesses as solutions. That idea of creation always really, really appealed to me and was a, it, it made it very easy for me to interact with leaders um, of businesses, and particularly founders of businesses. Um, so the technical side, it took a while to go from the academic to, to real life. Um, but the reality of business, not just as a way for some shareholders to make money, but as an exciting um, mechanism for solving problems in the world. I saw just so many examples of that when I was uh, working in the transformation of uh, Eastern Europe um, to a more market-based economy. I recall you mentioned a due diligence exercise in the Gobi Desert that uh, was particularly memorable. And I wondered if you might tell that story and also any reflections on how you have taken what you learned in those extreme early days of sort of nascent transfer, you know, economic transformation, capitalism taking root, um, and the ideas around how you assess risk and opportunity when markets are very new, when you don't have track records, when you don't have a lot of data to make decisions, and what you've taken in your career from those early experiences in extreme conditions? Yeah, really extreme conditions in many ways. Yes. So by this time, um, we would be in the late 90s. I had moved to back to New York, but was working for Shore Bank, advising, um, particularly advising on um, microfinance and small business institutions and was involved in setting up a fund that was going to invest in those institutions in emerging markets. And I was in Mongolia for the first time in my life, um, diligencing a microfinance organization. At that time in the, the economy of Mongolia, microfinance was big banking. You know, the, the majority of people across that country at that time would be self-employed in, in, in small and micro businesses. So we were traveling from Ulaanbaatar um, into um, a, a town right in the middle of, a very small town right in the middle of the Gobi Desert to look at one of the branches of this microfinance institution. And I think that the uh, the bank really wanted to look after us. And so they arranged um, a, a beautiful big car to take us on this about eight or nine hour journey. Um, unfortunately, though, it was the coldest winter in living memory. Uh, that year. And we set off, I recall setting off from Ulaanbaatar. And um, after only about 30 minutes, we drove off the road. I asked why. And they said, well, there is no road between, there's, there's no road between here and this town. So we just started striking out across this completely white wilderness of uh, snowy Gobi Desert. Um, all very exciting until the car got stuck in a snowdrift. And however hard the driver tried to dig it out, he couldn't. And we looked at our situation, no mobile phone, phone coverage, no sign of life within sight. And um, once the petrol ran out in the car, too cold for us to survive. Um, and it was one of those moments where you question a lot of things in your life. And then very, very fortunately for us, a very, very dark spot appeared on the horizon. 
and got bigger and bigger. And we waved and we screamed and it was a huge truck. Um, and it did ultimately turn towards us and had tow ropes and towed us out. And, um, we turned around and went back where we came from and lived to tell the tale. What does all of that mean for mm. <laughs> thinking about risk? It makes the efficient um, and- frontier look look very tame. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think uh, it's it's humbling. That's the first thing. It's humbling to be in a situation like that. Yeah, it reminds you how just how ma- how much you count on mm. to make a life, and how much you count on to uh, succeed in your career. Um, secondarily, as I say, that was, you know, we were just going out to see one of the branches of one of a, you know, quite major bank in Mongolia. So it was a great reminder of the constraints within which that financial institution was managing very successfully. Mm -hmm. And yet the the ability of uh, a local finance institution to overcome those mm-hmm. kinds of odds was um, was humbling and impressive. And I guess it gave you a grounding in recognizing that actually doing investments that are hard, that are, you know, have some intrinsic challenges that aren't all set up for you and you have to go, you know, have to take some personal risks, actually, that you did, um, was not only of interest to you, but also could 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 do good and also could potentially really change communities change lives and was could be a part of the investment spectrum well i think that you're right because in in the end the fund did make that investment in the mongolian microfinance bank it made loans that enabled people right across the country to um, grow their own small, small businesses and sustain their livelihoods and their families. And it was a very, very um, successful investment for the fund as well. So I think it is a great early example of uh, what I've then gone on to do in a very different geographic context, Mm -hmm. but to make investments that can do good in areas where they're also likely to do very well commercially Mm -hmm. and for our investors. Well, I'm very glad that that truck showed up and that uh, gave you a lift. (laughs) Besides the very cold weather and harsh climate, um, were there other reasons led you back to to building your career then in the UK? Yeah, so by that time, I'd spent uh, 10 years uh, working um, all over the world uh, in in international development finance uh, for institutions like the IFC and others. And I became interested again in my own country um, and um, became interested in the Gulf in economic opportunity within the UK and began to wonder whether the tools that had been used, the financial tools of investing in, in economic opportunity worldwide, could be turned to my own country. And what happened very specifically was I was asked to advise um, something called the Social Investment Task Force, um, chaired by Sir Ronald Cohen, who's gone on to become a huge figure in the field of impact investing. And it was asked by 
the then Chancellor Gordon Brown to think about how the tool of investment could be used to catalyse economic growth and dynamism in the most deprived quartile of the UK. And that really gave me the opportunity to think about these questions. Um, And when the task force put out its report, one of the recommendations was that government should provide matching capital to create, actually we asked for five funds that would invest in the most deprived quartile of the UK. Um, And I called up Sir Ronald Cohen and said, we've written it down. Um, Can I help you to uh, create the first of these Mm -hmm. funds? And that went on to become Bridges Fund Management, where I've uh, now been co-founder and co-CEO for uh, 21 years. So you were really there um, at sort of the, the the moment of birth of the impact investment market in the UK. And your journey has involved not just building a company since then, um, beautifully named Bridges, actually, um, but building a new sector as well. Um, what did that require of you? Great question. And and I think it's true that a lot of pioneers in new areas do end up uh, building the plane as they fly it, you know, building their own sector as well as building their own company. In fact, Ronald had done very much the same and um, at Apex Partners being very involved in the building up of the idea of private equity and venture capital. And now it was our turn to do the same for the concept of sustainable and impact investing. Um, it involved encouraging people to take a view on a type of investment that they had not done before and that they weren't sure was justifiable in their portfolio. Mm-hmm. So when uh, I raised the first fund for Bridges, I did have some very well-meaning people from the city take me aside and explain that it was great that I wanted to do something for deprived areas. Um, And it was great that I wanted to do investments, but that I needed to understand that I needed to choose, that either I needed to care about deprived areas, in which case I should set up a foundation, or I needed to make investments, in which case I needed to forget all dimensions except risk um, and return. And so we had to find those individuals um, either of their own net worth, high net worth, or many times senior individuals in banks, pension funds, and other institutions that were prepared to take a chance um, on the idea that you could do both. And uh, so that was the beginning. We were, we were, our concept was counter to the economic norms at the time, or at least the investment norms that said, if you're doing investments and you're, you are an investor, then you need to almost check your values at the door. Yeah. and come into the office and just look at risk-adjusted return of those investments um, and bringing in the dimension of impact on people and planet was those days just not considered right in terms of investment. And, and goodness, that's changed so much, thankfully, in the last 21 years. And what, in your experience of doing that, um of building those relationships, of of making the case, what did you find was most persuasive uh, for people? And were you able to change minds or was it about finding people who were already receptive to that? 
Great question. It changed over time. And I've become very interested in the uh, the uh, curve that shows the adoption of new technologies or new ideas. And at the beginning of that curve, you see the early uh, pioneers. Bridges was an early pioneer. And I think a lot of the individuals that put money into Bridges First Fund, they were those early, early pioneers. They had a sense, you know, I'm doing this investment job for a living, but there's something more that I want to do with my life. I want to do something that makes a difference. And, and it was those individuals that were willing to put capital into that first fund. And that's the first phase. And then once we'd proven that we surprised everyone by actually making attractive returns by investing in those most deprived quartile of the country, then you started to get some of the early adopters coming in. So then you're not the first that puts money into a fund like that. And, and you start to see other people um, daring to do it. Um, and then what we found we needed to do, and this was very much um, a focus of the task force, was uh, we needed to start to think about this activity as a sector, if you like, and to create sector-based organizations. So um, it needed a name. And uh, in 2007, the Rockefeller Foundation took aside some leaders in this space and we christened the name Impact Investing. It needed a membership association, so the Global Impact Investing Network was created and later the Global Steering Group for Impact Investing, which I was a part of, as you say, chair of the National Advisory Board. And, and by coming together and creating those kinds of institutions and a name for the activity, we then were able to persuade many, many more uh, people across the finance sector to become interested. Uh, we then needed to share successes and we were very involved in making sure that the investments that we were making were well publicized so that the sector could understand this um, opportunity to make investments that made a difference. And by, I think it was 2014, I was invited to be the keynote speaker at the main membership association of the private equity sector, the British Venture Capital Association, um, I was invited to make a keynote on impact investment. And that felt like a massive moment um, where I was telling the mainstream private equity sector that they would miss an opportunity if they didn't look at companies that were really working to solve major social or environmental challenges. Um, then from 2015, we had really global support through the creation of the Sustainable Development Goals um, and through the Paris Agreement. And since then, this whole idea has begun to go mainstream. I've always thought of you um, as having a remarkable ability to hold two ideas at once in your head, you know, the investor head, the investor um, identity, and if you will, a sort of agent of social change as well. So you've been really helpful in breaking down those silos that have existed, the sort of the 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 duality of those two things being able to be held at once. And I'm just wondering how you think of yourself, you know, if you've if that is a if is that a description of your mental map of of thinking of yourself both always as an investor and an agent of social change in some way or some other expression like that, that uh, that you just do, you're able to hold those two ideas in the practice of what you're doing um, day to day, as well as in your own uh, way of thinking about yourself and 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 your professional identity. 
Yes. When we were first recruiting for Bridges Fund Management, I used to say we're looking for people who are like a stick of Brighton rock, that if you were to cut them anywhere along that, you would find written social impact, financial returns, written all the way through. And uh, it's true that, well, it's my belief that all financial um, sector organisations need those two um types of focus in their work. And that's what we've really seen change in the last uh, 21 years. Uh, whether they are um, pure sort of ESG investors where the primary goal is to make investments that make attractive returns, but they wish to manage, uh, mitigate negative impacts that those investments might have on people and planet, or whether they're more towards the impact investing end, um, as we are, where we think about investments as having a great opportunity to help solve some of the big social and environmental challenges that we face as a world. Um, one of the interesting challenges over the last 21 years has actually been attracting the right talent um, as this idea has taken off. And some of the members of our team that are the most in demand across the market would be those that have specialized impact measurement, impact management skills, because a lot of the finance sector is now looking for that. So yes, the ideal, I mean, I see myself as having both of those running running through me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I wouldn't do the work if I didn't think that it was going to have a positive purpose, but I love the work of investment in itself because of the entrepreneurialism, the analytical side of it. Um, and uh, and as a firm, it's crucial that we have um, individuals that have very strong expertise in both of those. And I would say that every single person at Bridges has got a bit of both the, the strong commercial driver and the strong impact driver. And as you have built Bridges and made investments along the way um, over the last 15 years or so, um, the 20, 20 years now, um, how have you learned to be an investor? What have you learned about yourself? Yeah, the part of the market that I've always been in has been private assets, alternatives. And uh, the thing, the reason that we started Bridges in that sector actually was because of the high degree of involvement um, that you have as an investor in each of the investments that you make. I mean, we we think at Bridges that probably it's only a minority of the success of a deal that is driven by which deal you select, which investment you select. Uh, it could be as much as 60% of success is driven by how you um, uh, build value in the company or the property that you've made an investment in. So uh, one of the things that I've learned over the uh, over my career is um, it, it is is to build around us a value creation function, um, an expertise in helping businesses to reach their full potential, um, which can really make the difference. And part of that, from a Bridges perspective, means um, a value creation team which incorporates impact in that team. So our value creation team is going to be working with each of our companies to uh, help them to strengthen their management team, to build their board, to put in software and systems that can take them to the next level of sophistication and growth, um, to write uh, a, a clear uh, three to five year business plan, 
but also to measure the impact of their activities on society, to create an impact report that can share with stakeholders what they're doing to the benefit of society that can in turn increase customer loyalty and employee loyalty. So um, I think one of the great things I've learned is selection is crucial but the way that you own and the way that you hold and the way that you manage businesses is one of the great drivers of success, certainly in our end of private markets. Some people will think of investing as buying the 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 asset. And what you're saying is it's the owning of the asset, the process of the engagement, the support, the interactions, the, the, the whole life cycle is where the value comes from. Yes. Yeah. Doing a deal with a private equity backer, is almost like getting married. You're going to be working for three to five, sometimes even seven years, incredibly intensively to help this business to reach its full potential before you exit it. And so the period of time that we diligence a business might be six or even as long as 12 months, but the period of time that we'll hold it might be as long as seven years. Um, so in private markets, I think uh, it's, it's heavily about not just selection, but value creation. And using the metaphor of marriage, sometimes people um, get infatuated and fall in love with the wrong person. Um, I wonder if you've had any experiences where, you know, that emotional tie to a business has has actually inhibited or become a problem for the value creation. Yeah, you ask a great question. It's it's very tough to be a private equity investor. You've got to do so many things. You've got to be good at marketing and selling because you've got to go out and originate. In our case, we look at big social environmental issues and then we think about investable solutions. And then we've got to go out and find companies that are part of that solution. And then we've got to persuade the management teams that we are the partner that they want to, um, that can bring them value over the next five to seven years. There's a lot of, of selling that goes on at the beginning. Then you're going to look after that company and work with that management team for three to five to seven years. And that involves a lot of operating skills, a lot of expertise in uh, what it takes for a business to go from one size to the next. Um, and and then, uh, having done all of that, uh, you then need to go out into the market and find the right next owner of that business and strike a successful transaction. So private equity requires a very broad skill set. And I think that's one of the things that draws me to it. It is different from um, picking um, uh, a quoted company to put money into. It's a much more intimate relationship than that. Um, and I think that's one of the things very exciting about uh, alternatives and private markets. It's a part of the financial market in which you are making a lot of change. Even in real estate, we're not buying existing buildings, holding them and selling them. We're typically funding the, the build of very environmentally friendly buildings or the environmental retrofit of old um, leaky buildings into environmentally friendly buildings. We're always um, making change in order to make superior financial returns. And that feels a great place also for someone that likes to make change and make a difference in the world. You've talked a bit about actually the role of the investor that you've played at Bridges and fascinating this, the gamut of, of, of types of activities that are required, um, skills and qualities. In terms of being a co-CEO and building actually a, a really thriving asset management firm, what has that taken? And particularly, I'd be really interested to know what you think creates excellence in an investment management business 
Yeah, that's really been a journey because we've needed to transform from, if you like, an impact-focused pioneer outside the financial mainstream to um, a high-quality institutional manager uh, managing um, now 80-90% of our assets would be institutional capital, um, largely pension fund money. And that means going from an entrepreneurial um, activity with a first fund that no one's done a fund quite like this before, investing in the most deprived areas, to what we are now, um, having a number of different private asset class strategies, having a clear focus on both environmental um, impact. So we want to invest in a more sustainable economy and we want to invest in a more inclusive economy. And creating systems are going to um, create um, replicable financial success. Very different to do your first entrepreneurial fund. And our first entrepreneurial fund did have all types of business um, stages. For example, we invested in venture, we invested in profitable companies that were growing, we invested in turnaround buyouts. Now, our private equity strategy focuses on profitable businesses that are in the growth stage. It's very honed. It's very very, we're very specific about the part of the market that we know that we're good at investing. Mm. Um, and and for me, it's uh, it means going from the person who wrote the website, raised the capital, worked on the, some of the first transactions to someone that now has a wonderful, talented person doing each of those jobs. Um, and uh, And my role is more to empower the the team that sit underneath me um, to do uh, to do their work rather than spending most of my time doing uh, more than I sit on IC, but I would not be um, as involved in direct investments and even not as involved in the fundraising as I used to be. You've mentioned impact investing, um, moving really from a, a sort of nascent sandbox stage where you were actually demonstrating what it was, naming it, demonstrating what it could accomplish, setting, creating track records of financial returns and so on. We're really, as you say, in a new period for that. And it has in some ways exploded and has almost become fashionable. Um, how do you feel about the state of impact investing now? And how do you see it developing from here? First thing is it's it's a little, it was a little slow to come. We were trying to promote this message since 2001, 2002. It really only started catching on after 2015. Really, the private markets has come into impact investing in the last five years or so. However, it's fantastic that it's happening. It's fantastic to see big name private equity and um, private assets managers across infrastructure and real estate coming in to impact investing, um, new specialist impact investors um, coming in and impact funder funds coming in seeking to provide an avenue for uh, LPs, for investors to get into this space. So we really, really welcome the transformation. It's not enough because the challenges that the world faces are so much bigger than the capital that is currently being raised for impact. So we need trillions of dollars invested if we're going to um, maintain a planet which is comfortable for people to live on, taking just one impact goal of a sustainable planet. Um, so we need much more and we need it 
much faster. And so the challenge that we have as bridges is that although we've grown a lot and we've got multiple strategies, we are tiny compared to the challenges that we face. So the next stage for us is to figure out how to grow faster and how to be more international um, so that we can um, identify more solutions that we can invest in and play a a bigger role in terms of um, driving impact. Actually, also, just in pure, in, in terms of being a successful asset manager, it is hard to be a small asset manager and scale allows so much more. So there are, there's, again, as you say, always those drivers of the driver of purpose and the commercial driver, and both of them are driving us to, um, to find a way to scale more, um, while at the same time encouraging other new players to come into the market. Thank you. And maybe just going back, we've covered a lot of the uh, ground of building the business, of you as an investor, what you've learned about impact investing and and actually how it has changed and what it where it is going. Maybe we could go back to um some personal sides of of how that's been for you and how how you have actually managed your career. Are there a handful of books? writers or thinkers or even mentors um, that have really been your touchstones that have kept you on track over all of this period of incredible growth and change um, that have or or maybe meaningfully uh, influenced how you think? It's funny because I, I never was someone that had a formal mentor. But if I look back at my life, there have been three that have from whom I've learned an enormous amount and that have have helped to shape uh the the investor that I now am and the the leader that I hope to be. Um the first will have inspired many people and that's Nelson Mandela. So I did not know him personally, but reading his book, The Long Walk to Freedom, was uh I, I use that as a bedrock for myself when the going gets tough. I think about him in his prison cell, how he uh, fought to have books to read, how he exercised every single day, how he held on to his very clear life's purpose. And uh, I find that an incredibly inspiring place to go to, as I say, whenever um, what I'm trying to do feels challenging. Then my real life mentors, uh, I mentioned uh, Sir Ronald Cohen, who is chair of the Social Investment Task Force, who I called up and asked if we could together set up a firm and who became the founding chair of Bridges and then the chair of our advisory board um, for our second decade. And watching how he has very consciously worked to build a system that supported impact investment, first in the UK, then moving to the G7, and now globally with the global steering group and his um the way that he sets a strategic objective and then basically believes it and talks about it if it's true as if it's true until he makes it true um that kind of um approach to determinedly changing the world to the way you think it should be just by believing it and convincing everybody else to believe it um has been incredibly inspiring to me 
And then we talked a little bit, a bit about the um, the joys of being a non-executive. Um, and at British International Investments, I was very fortunate to be a non-executive under the chairmanship of um, Sir Graham Wrigley, um, who formerly um, had a very successful career at Permira. And uh, one of the things that inspired me about him is that when he left Permira, he had the humility to know he wanted to go into international development. So he went to SOAS and he studied it. And that says almost everything about Graham. Instead of believing that because you've had a highly successful career in finance, that you will then be able to go on to run a nonprofit, to um, to run a development finance institution, he uh, he was humble enough to feel like he needed to study um and he brings to his work a command of detail combined with an incredible generosity of spirit and and humanity towards everybody that he leads that um has had a powerful effect on how i then try to to lead my own firm there's so much collective wisdom that can be shared um when working side by side in in a boardroom, I think as well. Um, well, it's funny you say that, Susanna, because in terms of a book, um, I would urge people to have a look at a book called Collective. Um, uh, oh, Collective Intelligence. Okay. Uh, it's a book on leadership, and it's a book on leadership which is all about creating an organisation that is smarter than you are. And I'm reading it at the moment. I'm very excited about the idea of leadership where you deliberately are empowering all the individuals that are working for you to be entrepreneurial. Because um, we, there's no doubt that uh, what really changes the world is collective intelligence, not any one individual's activities. Do you per- personally have a, a legacy in mind or a mark that drives you um, that you're trying to leave or would like to leave um, through the work that you do? I'm absolutely all in at Bridges, um, and my goal is that Bridges will continue to thrive beyond me and play a role pushing the agenda in impact finance into the future. So that is, it's it's not, there's something else that I want to go on and do. Everything that I want to do is is through bridges. The only thing is, having had a father who's an academic, I'm just never quite clear whether a life has been well lived if you don't write a book. So who knows? But there's some part of me that feels, even if we do manage to make bridges a continued important player in sustainable and impact investing, it might not be enough unless there's some kind of book. Maybe you could even a children's book. It would be a pleasure to read any book, even with or without pictures um, that you would write. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it sort of goes to the fact that you have a very rich life, Eve. um, You wear a lot of different hats. You're obviously co-CEO, you're a mother, you're a trustee, you're a spokesperson for a whole industry. I'm interested on a personal level how you manage that and if there is a habit or a single thing that's sort of most essential that you'd say that keeps you happy and ticking along um, or if there's any actively chosen thing you don't do um, that also other, you know, that other people do um, that has been helpful for you to, to choose not to participate in. It is. I mean, it's, it's, I think, such a joy um, to be a woman um, in, 
in business and an investment or in any career really and to be able to have uh, an incredibly demanding day and then open the door and a whole new and different life completely different life and completely different persona um, emerges so uh, it's busy but I love the balance what do I do? Um, I think the, the the piece that has made it all possible is an ability to compartmentalize. So I have found that I'm typically able to come home at the end of the day, be with the family, and then when they go to bed, perhaps go back into work, and then compartmentalize again and be able to sleep. If you're not able to do that, I've certainly seen for a lot of people extremely difficult because if your mind is whirring on work when you're with the kids or whirring on the kids when you're at work, it's very hard not to be exhausted and overwhelmed by that. So I think that's been um, that's something that I would advise to any woman who's trying to balance that is to try to find boxes in your brain and just put things away while you're doing one thing and then take them out again mm-hmm. when you're doing the next. What piece of advice would you give anyone right now aspiring to enter the investment industry and maybe related to that if you were recruiting you've mentioned for bridges the 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 brighton rock the the blend of of motivation and drive um what do you what would you look for um and how would you assess them yeah the first thing i would like to say is that um if anyone's listening um who who isn't thinking of it yet, you know, do think again, because it's so much more multicolored and uh, fascinating as an industry. And, and we still don't have enough women that are joining it. Um, if you're already there that you want to be in the investment industry, then uh, certainly we are looking at Bridges, at someone who will, will have had a few years getting the tools of the trade. So they will have done perhaps an accountancy qualification and gone into corporate finance, or they might have gone into an investment bank and trained in uh, financial analysis. Um, and um, and I would say uh, just getting, taking that first step to get the technical skills that will then be the foundation on which you build all those softer skills that I was talking about, particularly if you're going to go into alternatives or private assets. But in general, uh, being good at investment is a combination of technical skills and, um, and wisdom and uh, much broader um, experience. So, so uh, just start by building those technical skills and don't worry too much about whether where you start will be where you end up. Because I think in general, a, a lot of a lot of people that we that we hire um, may not have started knowing that they wanted to be in private equity um, and they may have found their way to it. But it is a profession in which there's a lot of ability to change over time. So, so just get started. Having said all of that, though, I also want to say in my own career, it was not planned. Um, I did what I was in my heart each time I made a decision. And I do worry a little bit that some young people feel under pressure to know exactly where they want to be and to take all the right steps. And so the other thing I would say is that maybe you've gone in a different direction first. Um, there still can be a way to turn around and uh, go back, study outside of your work, get a um, get a, a financial analysis um, skill, and, and and come back into the sector. I think uh, careers are not all completely linear, um, and they can definitely 
absolutely. I can say it could definitely be built just by doing the next thing, which is really in your heart. And you'll probably do it well, and it will probably take you to the next place that you ought to be. As you mentioned, increasing diversity of all kinds in financial services um, and creating more inclusive organizations. Uh, are there initiatives or ideas that you think could be game changers for this? Yeah, we are complete believers that are, and the statistics are there to show us that more diverse financial institutions make better investment decisions. They simply do because the more diverse you are as an organization, uh, the more diversity of knowledge, experience, and ideas. And, uh, and, and research shows that, um, if you're uh, presenting to a diverse audience, you prepare much better than if you're presenting to an audience where you all think the same. So it's just a question of shortcut conversations. So I think diversity is important um, as a good in itself, but it's very important if you want to be the most successful investment finance institution or investing institution. Um, at the same time, especially in private but markets, there's some real obstacles to it. In private markets, it's a very accretive profession. You get good at doing private equity deals by doing private equity deals. Each private equity deal takes three to five to seven years. Um, to be senior, you need to have originated, owned a company and exited it quite a few times. And so if a diverse population has not come into that sector, um, it takes a while for them to come through, certainly in senior leadership. So that is the big challenge. So we're doing a number of things. We have a number of programs um, where we um, support um, study programs and apprenticeships uh, for individuals that are interested. We've got one in real estate. Um, we have um, we participate in the Black Interns program that the private equity industry has come together to create. So we're looking at how we can uh, show uh, more diverse individuals about the opportunity to be in finance, uh, and then we've experimented with ideas like having younger members of our team observe investment committees because um, they've just got a different life experience. So yes, they may not have been through as many life cycles of deals as we have, um, but they're aware of, uh, of attitudes and consumer behaviors that we may not be so good at. And the younger members of the team are more diverse. So uh, we're always striving to do better in terms of diversity and inclusion. And it's hard mm -hmm. in, in private assets, but it takes determination and creativity um, to make it happen. Thank you for all of those amazing reflections on your life and what you've accomplished. Um, I am afraid we're going to have to wrap up because uh, you've got some investments to make, <laughs> business <laughs> to run. I usually finish up with four to five quick fire questions, which just give you a chance to share a little bit more about your personal um, favorites in life. Um, do you have a favorite band, singer or album? Surprisingly enough, that's easy. Um, the Beatles. Uh, we've discussed the fact that my parents were creatures of the 1960s and the Beatles was the soundtrack to my childhood. And actually, I've recently really enjoyed um in a way their comeback so my daughter and I have watched the documentary made by Peter Jackson and so my 18 year old daughter my 18 year old daughter knows all the words of the songs as well as I do now which is a, a kind of a great as you say a great closing of a circle absolutely and I I did take um a tour with my husband 
uh, in Liverpool. It's two National Trust properties that they own, which is John Lennon's house and Paul McCartney's house. And you can actually go and see them. And that I hugely recommend. You know, for instance, John Lennon's aunt did not allow Paul McCartney to come in the front door because of his accent. Back door only. Only back door. So favorite film or novel that you've seen or read more than twice and why? There are. I absolutely love films and books. Um, as a young person, I was very inspired by Joyce Beckett and T.S. Eliot, particularly Wasteland. But I'm going to name Russian literature because I read that really voraciously in my teen years. And the book that made the biggest impression was Anna Karenina, which I had the great joy of reading when I was on that amazing trip around China. So I was in China for three months, but I was also in St. Petersburg and Moscow through Anna Karenina. On trains? Yeah, on trains. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And favourite quote and why? I often turn to Eleanor Roosevelt for inspiration, um, and I particularly like this one on leadership. Uh, She says, a good leader inspires people to have confidence in the leader. A great leader inspires people to have confidence in themselves. And that says it all about what I'm trying to do as as a leader. And do you have uh, a favorite podcast and why I always ask this to sort of give a shout out to other podcasters as well? Well, apart from yours, of course. Um, I am... I love podcasts. I am spending a bit of time at the moment with Empire um, just because it takes such a detailed look at periods of history. And um, I think the experience on both sides of Empire, um, its positives and its very, very, very many negatives is uh, a good reminder all the time um, to be focused on the real outcomes of your actions finally your favorite comedian and why uh, it's got to be well it's not just one but it's monty python everywhere from I mean, the the family still choose life of brian as uh, the film to watch whenever we need a bit of a a bit of a lift and um i just think their humor is not only you know fall over funny but quite thought-provoking Well, thank you so much, Michelle. That's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your joining us and and helping us understand this amazing journey you've been on of bringing impact investing uh, really into the mainstream. Uh, And I wish you all the very best for the next chapter of, of this amazing story. for joining me for this episode of Being Invested. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If so, please subscribe and tell your friends. Also, if you know someone in the financial markets who would make a great guest on the podcast, please message me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Alexander Russell. Our art designer is Sophie Hardy and this fabulous catchy tune is from Tom McKeon. Thanks, folks, and see you next time.